we have gradually expanded our, our conception of what we think of as, as war. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today, I'm in New York. We're joined in Washington by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of the forthcoming book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, out August 9th. Also with us, Yochi Driesen, FP Managing Editor for News and author of The Invisible Front. Calling into the studio from Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Before we begin, I'd like to add a thank you to our dedicated ER fans out there for continuing to submit ideas, uh, and when you receive mugs for those ideas, for showing off your mugs on Twitter, uh, it builds the buzz, and I think we may be up to 13 or 14 listeners now. Please keep them coming, and feel free to email if you have any ideas, questions, or feedback. We're at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. The conversation is about Rosa Brooks's great new book, How Everything Became War, and the military became everything. I've caught a glimpse of the New York Times' glowing front page of book review, review of your book, Rosa, and uh, I'm impressed by the fact that you've managed to pull yourself down from the ceiling uh, (laughs) and into our studio for a conversation because it's as glowing and wonderful as that sort of thing gets. Uh, David, now I can die happy. Uh, well, please don't. It would be <laughs> it would be premature. It would make us all very, very unhappy. The book talks a little bit about your clairvoyance in terms of timing, uh, and suggests that uh, a lot of what we've seen in the streets of America ma- are manifestations of themes you talk about in the book. Not to mention headlines that we get from elsewhere in the world. Do you want to explain the premise and why that is? how the book review was framed? Yeah, it's, I was actually a little surprised by that because uh, I was I was attributed with uh, psychic powers that I, I definitely do not possess. Um, in fact, I... Wait a second. What psychic powers do you possess? Uh, I, can, I can levitate small objects, um, but I oh. actually can't predict the future. And the objects have to be very, very small. She can um, burst people into like, flames with her mind. <laughs> That's right. So, so don't make me mad. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I, I actually was a little bit fearful since I dithered and took a long time, longer than I should have, in actually getting this book finished. I was a little bit fearful that all the issues that I thought were important would be sort of old hat and nobody would be interested in them anymore. I mean, the, the premise of the book is captured by the title, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And what I was really interested in and looking at in the book was the ways in which in the last 15 or so years, really the post 9-11 United States, we have gradually expanded our our conception of what we think of as, as war. And we put more and more things, uh, counterterrorism, cyber conflict, etc., in this uh, legal and political box that we label war, which has 
astonishing consequences, really far-reaching consequences, more more far-reaching than I think most people realize for for the law, for individual rights, for government power. And one of the many consequences of that expanding what we think of as war also is that we are piling more and more and more onto the military with all kinds of complicated institutional co- uh, consequences for the military. And another little piece of the book, and in some ways it's actually a pretty small piece of the book itself, was looking at the ways in which there's a kind of trickle-down effect uh, of as we expand what we think of as war internationally, a trickle-down effect into domestic politics. And I talk a little bit about the ways in which that's affecting things like immigration, policing, et cetera. Um, so I think that's given all the news about policing and questions about the militarization of police. That's something that the reviewer picked up on. Um, and it's 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 I, now I wish in hindsight I'd made it a bigger part of the book since uh, it's, it's obviously an issue right now. But um, it's one of the many things in there. Corey, you're a military historian. Rosa describes a phenomenon that seems to be a bit of a turning point in the history of how we view the military and how we view war. What's your take on that? I think she's right. I do think that the United States, whenever it has had domestic security challenges, tends to become quite militaristic in the prosecution of them. And I don't mean prosecution in a legal sense. I mean prosecution in the dealing with this problem sense. Uh, If you think about westward expansion in the 19th century, there are very strong parallels. And when we as a society get fearful, we we tend to become quite coercive and quite militaristic. And only that only relaxes when the sense of security becomes more pervasive. And I think Rose is right that there are a lot of second and third order consequences that people, because they are fearful for security, aren't actually weighing uh, as, as heavily as I think they ought to. There is an implication in, in the title and an explicit uh, discussion in the book about the the benefits of this idea that that war becomes everything. Yucky, you also uh, closely follow the military. Um, what's your what's your take on this? Are we in the midst of a of a pernicious trend that Rosa has captured here? I think so, and it's interesting because you also have had people like Bob Gates saying for years that the military is being asked to do too many things that are not military things. When I was living in Iraq, you had the military building schools, which is kind of the held up as like the sine qua non example of what the military shouldn't do. I mean, the entire counterinsurgency thinking was you had the military doing schools, building hospitals, passing out food, water. It was seen as the default. If there's a national disaster, send in the military. If you had diplomacy that wasn't working because ambassadors couldn't leave compounds, have military guys who were far forward basically functioning as ambassadors. I mean, this has been kind of a a growing trend that sectors of defense have also worried about. And I think it's it's worth it's really worthy of the deep dive. What I've been struck by in the last couple of months and really in the last couple of weeks and the last couple of days is you think about the military, it's been the one institution that people have had regard for. And then you drill further down, it's been the one institution that the Republican Party has been married to for years. And now, like so many other things with Trump, it's changing. And you know, Rosa, two things I was curious about. One, when you have a Republican candidate who really bashes the military all the time, calls them a disaster, says they're losing. I mean, I wonder what you make of that. But then more specifically, when you have Trump finding support in part because he, like Bernie Sanders, like Gary Johnson, are all articulating basically a neo-isolationist foreign policy, 
a feeling of why do we have our military in Asia? Why do we have our military in Europe? Pull them back to the states. I mean, sort of how, how do you square that? This kind of rising isolationism that's on both both parties. In some ways, Trump is is hearkening back to a much earlier vision of the role of the U.S. military. Uh, although it's it's contradictory, like so much else that Trump talks about, you know that that he has said on the one hand he says, oh, the military is a disaster. It's been it's been damaged. It's been underfunded. It's been overstretched, et cetera. But I don't think that necessarily loses him military support because, of course, he also says, I'm going to make the military. And I think these were more or less his exact words: so big, so strong, so huge, you know, so huge that nobody is ever going to mess with it. But but in a sense, he sees it he sees it in a very traditional way, not. Not as this institution that can do everything and go out and start micro-enterprise programs for Afghan women and fix the agricultural sector in Iraq and stop human trafficking. He sees it as its job is to be fundamentally a, a defensive mechanism and a deterrent. It's going to be so big and so strong that nobody will dare to create a situation where they have to come face to face with it. Um, so it'll be big and strong and we're not going to use it unless we absolutely have to, um, which which is interesting. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, obviously, he's 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 full of contradictions. We don't quite know what he would actually actually do. The specificity of his military policy comes down to it's a disaster, but I will make it big and strong. He's also, of course, alienated many in the military with uh, comments that suggest that he would he would expect everyone to follow his orders, even if they were illegal orders and so forth. So he's 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 thrown out a, a pretty scary uh, disregard for the law of armed conflict, which I think for in terms of the internalized sense of military professionalism for military officers in particular is is pretty chilling. OK, so. I had made a vow to myself that we were not going to talk about Trump. On <laughs> we don't show. have to talk about Trump. Because we talk about Trump all the time. Obviously, Yucky can't get him off his brain. And I, you know, I don't blame him as I wake up screaming in the night, just like everybody else at the prospect uh, of Donald Trump as president. But I guess the question is, is this Trump phenomenon or Sanders phenomenon a reaction to some of the trends you're talking about in the book? And could one take it actually a step further, given Hillary Clinton's more traditional view or or, or more mainstream view of, of the use of military force and suggest that this election is actually a referendum on some of the things that you're writing about in the book, Rosa? So can I take a swing at that? Um, I sure. Think, I think that's Speak right. Speak for Rosa. Speak for Rosa. She's so <laughs> <Go ahead>. shy. <laughs> I think two things going on. One is I agree with that, that the public is deeply dissatisfied with permanent wars we don't appear to be winning and feel like there ought to be a better way to do this. And they don't understand why it's so hard if, as everybody in a leadership possession always says, the United States has the finest military in the history of the world. So the contradictions in policies that fight wars slowly, incrementally, um, and public expectation based on what the leadership says about our military, that it shouldn't be going this way. I think that's one thing. But the other thing, and I'd I'd love to know whether Rosa um, sees it differently, 
is that part of the reason that the military's role has been expanding into micro lending and and women's lending circles has actually been that our expectations of what military force would achieve, our war aims, our political objectives that drive military, the use of military force, have been expanding and growing much more complicated and contradictory, right? We want to uh, use gas pedal and clutch in perfect coordination uh, and use all of the elements of the American government. But we don't actually have a government that's very good at that. So things that ought to be done by the State Department and others, USAID, end up being done by the military because there is a widespread perception in the political leadership that nobody but the military can get anything done when stuff needs doing. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I agree, Corey. Let, well, let me add something to what Corey's saying, Rosa, and get, get your reaction to the broader concept. What Corey's saying is probably true, that, that you know, there are these broader missions, uh, partially because of our unease about applying force, we're looking for other kinds of levers, uh, and other parts of the government have some limitations in their ability to get things done. But if you sort of peel away the, the history and the, the context uh, around all that, I think what you find is a couple of other phenomena. One is the kind of elevation of the military to sacrosanct terms in, 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 in public policy discussions, that you can't really criticize the military. Um, you, you, you actually have to go through this litany of saying it's the greatest military in the history of the world or you're, you're criticized. Trump has discovered, uh, I mean, Trump deserves all the criticism he gets, but he has discovered that there are some lines that even he, who is a transgressor of lines, every time he finds one, uh, will get disproportionate flack on, like going after Gold Star families. But the, but the military has a privileged position in the public policy debate. And one of the consequences of the privileged position that the military has, and, and really has had since the Reagan era, is that the military is about the only part of the government that really gets a lot of money. Uh, Congress people tend not to give the military a real hard pushback on their finances. And so unlike the State Department or USAID or the other parts of the government you want to have playing some of these roles, uh, DOD actually has the money. They're in the, because of this privileged position, and that's part of the reason they end up getting these assignments passed on to them. Anyway, Rosa, what yeah, do you think of that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I have a, a quip uh, in the book, which actually first appeared like much of what's in the book in, in columns over the years in foreign policy, where I, I quote uh, the sort of famous exchange possibly apocryphal between uh, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald, who was you know, famously in awe of the wealthy, says to uh, Hemingway, you know, the rich are different from you and me, to which Hemingway responds, yes, they have more money. 
uh, and the military has more money. Uh, it doesn't do all this stuff because it's necessarily any better at it uh, than the State Department or AID might be. Uh, often, arguably, it's it's worse because it's not what people in the military have, have been recruited or trained to do. Uh, but the military has the money. The military has the resources. The military has the authority. It's the it's the only public institution left standing. And although I, I, I know that the entire purpose of today's podcast is to uh, encourage people to go and immediately buy my book, uh, which, which listeners, uh, I hope all 12 of you will do instantly, I, I should add that Corey uh, has a book out as well right now that is a, a co-edited book with General James Mattis, uh, recently retired Marine Corps general. I have a chapter in it, too, and it's called Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military, that really, really drills down on a lot of what you were just getting at, David, in terms of social attitudes towards the military, uh, civil military relations, and so forth. So in addition, listeners, to buying my book, I do hope that you will rush out and buy Warriors and Citizens, edited by Corey Shockey and Jim Mattis as well. And also, while you're at it, you could buy Yoki's book and David's, and we'll, we'll send you all, we'll post a list on Twitter of all the books you could buy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but please coordinate your buying because if all of you at once rush to the bookstore in your neighborhood, uh, it may overwhelm uh, the booksellers. Um, Too true. Yucky, you're immersed in this world as well. If you were going to fix the phenomenon, uh, the, the negative elements of the phenomenon that Rosa has written about, where would you start? You know, it's interesting. There, there's a, a joke that's often made about the DOD budget, which happens to be true that there are more members of military bands around the world than there are foreign service officers for the State Department. I mean, it's really a kind of astounding number that even today when military bands perform for no one about nothing any of us care about, there are more members of those than there are foreign service officers. You know, to the point before about money, the DOD is probably the only institution in government not only that has money, but that is actively trying to give money back. Uh, you've had four secretaries of defense now consecutively who say, give us a bit less, give more to State Department. We don't want to do what State does give them money so they could do it. So first thing, I think you have to better fund state. I think you have to better fund USAID. I think you also have to get state and USAID out of the kind of fortress mentality they're in, especially post-Benghazi, where they stay behind walls, even in London, even in Paris, and never leave. If they won't leave, the only people who will leave are the military. No one else will do it. And so you get trapped into this kind of horrible catch-22. In a weird way, I think Trump has done something valuable, which is James Fallows did a great piece for The Atlantic some months ago, the military has arguably lost Korea, lost Vietnam, lost Iraq, lost Afghanistan, and then little bitty things in between. And it, it is about time that there is a discussion. Details, details. Right. But, you know, there, there should be a conversation about why do we keep losing? I mean, why is it that we set out goals that are vague, then we can't accomplish them? Then we try to make them more specific, and we can't accomplish those either. And, and I think, you know, David, to your question, I think that's the second part. I think there has to be—we hate to use the phrase national discussion because it often means nothing— but it is a fair question for those in the military, those outside the military, those in elected office, those of us who are journalists and sitting in the windowless studio, you know, tossing out ideas. But why is it that the military keeps losing? And if it's that the military is a disaster that Trump says, okay, that's one thing to look at. If it's underfunded, which seems unlikely, if you need to have, you know, Rosie, you talk about this in the book, if you need to have more of a cross-section serve and come from different communities that are currently, that are currently there. But all these things have to come back to the, the fundamental question of not only why do we have a military, but why does it keep losing? Yeah. No, and I, I think that at the very same time, we are increasingly expecting the military to do all these things that in, in most people's minds have nothing to do with the military, e.g., you know, the microfinance programs and so on. You know, we have a military in which the vast majority, majority of service members do not ever engage in combat. 
um, they they engage in uh, support functions or they end up doing uh, what what we once used to call nation building, or you can call it stability operations and so forth. Um, so on the one hand, the, the reality is that most people in the military don't fight because we don't ask them to fight because we want them to do other things, which may be incredibly important. But it, they're not fighting. But at the same time, we still recruit and train our military as if this were, you know, 1850. And we were going to throw massed armies of young disposable males at each other on a battlefield. You know, that by and large, military recruiting is still very much focused on American high schools. Uh, to a lesser extent, colleges, you know, 85 percent of the recruits are, are essentially young men. And Nothing wrong with young men, but if you're if what you're going to be doing, if what we if we, we want this institution to do, and, and maybe we do, and maybe we don't, right? But but if in practice what we're asking it to do uh, is cyber cyber conflict and uh, uh, economic development and support for governance, you wouldn't immediately say to yourself, "Aha! I think we need to get a bunch of eighteen and nineteen year old boys to do this." You would you wouldn't say you would say we need a very different demographic. We need radically different types of training, structure, organization. So, so we're sort of in the worst of all possible worlds where we're on the one hand asking the military to do an incredible array of things, many of which are really complicated and really sophisticated and even the experts tend to do badly because they're just so damn hard. And yet at the same time, we still have this kind of 19th century model of build these large armies full of young men uh, and they just don't go together very well. So, Corey, let me try to sum up the conversation so far. The military is sacrosanct above criticism. It's overfunded. It's got the wrong people doing the wrong missions and failing at it. First of all, do you agree with that? And next, how would you address the question I posed to Yaki? So I do agree with it, with that summary, uh, with one huge caveat, which is that yes, we're not as good at this as we should be. Yes, we've got a mismatch between uh, expectations and who we're recruiting. We, as a society, are averting our eyes from this conversation. Just one data point from the surveys that YouGov did for this book that Jim Mattis and I, that Rosa mentioned, that Jim and I edited, the, it is staggering how high the levels of public ignorance are on military issues. And I think that comes from uh, a few factors. First, the transition to an all-volunteer force in the 1970s. Second, the fact that we don't feel so much like a country is war at war as we do a military at war. And the political leadership is aggravating that by, by not spending time and effort talking about the wars. So I do think there is a sense of the American military as this exotic, marginal element in American society that we revere because we know they do stuff harder and more dangerous than the rest of us do. But we don't connect that to a conversation about, are we doing the right things? And does it matter that we keep losing our wars? Is that a function of the fact that these are wars we shouldn't be fighting? Or, But the one big caveat I would add to all of the criticism about the American military and our public conversation is that one of the reasons 
we can afford is that we are so good at the central war fighting functions that we actually drive our adversaries to the marginal uses of military force. Essentially, the only winning strategy against the United States military is drag this out for so long that the American public will stop caring and drive the cost up with sensational activities that will make people question, why are we doing this when it doesn't seem to matter directly to our security? So, so the central point is we look bad at fighting our wars because we're so good at central function, as I think most militaries in the world, especially our adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese, they don't think they can win a war in the central core competence of the profession. And that is driving innovation at the margins, cyber, hybrid warfare, terrorism, you know, the kinds of things Russia is doing in the Donbass where it's difficult to ascribe uh, their involvement. All those things are actually complements to how good the American military is at the center of the fighting profession. Well, that's, I mean, yes, that's an interesting point. Um but, <laughs> but it, it begs a question, right? Well, it begs a question, right? The question is, if we have invested so much and are so arguably superior at the central mission, that the central mission is almost never undertaken, uh, then the primary mission becomes something else. No. It becomes the missions that we do undertake. And the missions that we do undertake, for the most part, are post-conflict reconstruction after brief involvement uh, or peacekeeping or conflict prevention, uh, and that these things require skill sets that even with all the money that is flowing into the military, we don't have in the government today. Emergency economic intervention, where you go in quickly and you rebuild things fast and it may not be tidy and it's not development, it's for a political purpose, or dealing with refugees or fighting asymmetric wars, which we don't seem to be doing so well at, or dealing with some of the kinds of cyber exchanges that are new to the scene. So this, this you know, it raises a question. Have we, has the U.S. military become so good at one thing that it's forced itself into a business that it's bad at. So let me just say two quick things. The first is the central mission hasn't gone away. It has just gone from fighting to deterrence. We, in fact, deter major war, major conventional wars, just as we can deter major nuclear wars with the United States by dint of our strength. So it's not that those missions aren't important. It's that we're successfully accomplishing them every day by deterrence. And I commend to you George Quester's magnificent book, Deterrence Before Hiroshima, because it talks about instances of deterrence before nuclear weapons, obviously from the title, but that are still applicable. We tend to think of deterrence as only a nuclear issue, when in fact, it's even more important in some ways to the United States to deter major conventional force. But none of that means that, that we shouldn't get good at the non-military stuff 
by non-military agencies. David, I love your example of rapid economic intervention. I think that's something crucial we should be good at, and we're not. Can I can I shift uh, a little bit, though, to a, a slightly different issue, one that we touched on at the very beginning of this conversation, but then sort of lost track of? Um, we've been talking about uh, the when everything becomes war and the military becomes everything, what the what the political and institutional costs for the military itself are of asking it to take on all these all these uh, non-traditional things. But but one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book, which of course you should all go buy immediately, is a different cluster of issues and it's the the legal consequences as well of expanding how we think about war and putting cyber and counterterrorism and I'm betting we will soon be putting, you know, all sorts of biological threats and so forth, who knows, maybe even climate change into into the war box. Um because in some ways that that as a as a as a law professor, I suppose, and as a someone with a background in, in human rights is what is what chills me most. I mean, the institutional problems are are tough, but I think they're 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 visible, and we're talking about them, which means that we're a lot more likely to fix them. But I think that there are some some much harder to see costs of expanding and blurring what we think of as war, and. I know Corey is supposed to be the one who comes up with sort of obscure uh, historical references, but but think of it like this. I mean, almost every human society throughout history has worked really, really hard to maintain sharp lines between war and not war and between warriors and civilians. You know, think of things like uh, uh, war drums and war masks and war sorcery and complex initiation rituals for, for warriors. Uh, before they go into battle, and and there's a pretty straightforward reason for that. And I'm 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 going to resist the impulse now to launch into a long explanation of the Macao and Papua New Guinea and the uh, Navajo rituals in the American Southwest. But um, but read we'll the book. Save that read the book because they're really great. Um, yeah, but right. but there's a there's a reason that that every society has worked really hard to say. Uh, there's a there's a sharp symbolic line between war and not war warriors and civilians, and that's because in the modern era, as in every other era, we have radically different expectations legally and morally for what kind of behavior is appropriate during wartime versus the behavior that is appropriate during peacetime. And to, you know, to put it in its bluntest form, in in peacetime, you if you kill somebody, you probably get arrested and charged with murder in wartime you kill somebody if it's the right person you might even get a medal uh, you know and and that carries over to a lot of other forms of violence and coercion the the law of the law of war technically the law of armed conflict applies obviously when there is an armed conflict um, the more we expand what we consider to be armed conflict the greater the number of situations in which the U.S. government deems the law of armed conflict to be applicable rather than ordinary peacetime law. And the law of armed conflict is a lot more uh, forgiving of the use of violence and coercion by, by, by government authorities. It's a lot more forgiving of secrecy and lack of accountability. You know, and, and this ends up having this, – this ends up being hugely important, right, because it gets to the sort of fundamental question of – what what do we expect of our government and, and what is properly in the realm of the covert and the secret versus what is properly in the realm of what a democratic country should have checks and balances and public visibility into? So take take an example I've, I've written about a lot, both in the book and, and elsewhere, uh, U.S. drone strikes or targeted targeted killings. Uh, if If the U.S. is calling a targeted strike in Yemen or Pakistan or wherever – 
the lawful wartime targeting of an enemy combatant, then we have no legal problems and no moral problems. On the other hand, if we've sort of miscategorized as war something we should categorize in a different way, then they're just murders. That's all there are, you know, because if it's war, then you get to be secret. You get to not not reveal any of the evidence. You get to not have courts look at it. If we're not in the world of war, you don't get to run around the world just killing people because you sort of think that they're bad people. Um, and there are all kinds of more subtle ways in which the the placement of activities, you know, that's a dramatic example. But whether you want to look at NSA surveillance or you want to look at uh, indefinite detention at Guantanamo or elsewhere, there are all kinds of ways in which once you decide to call a set of activities war, um, you're operating in a world where we let the government do stuff that we wouldn't ordinarily let them do. And because there hasn't been because there hasn't been any real public conversation about well, what is war and when do we call something war and why, we completely miss the fact that that over the last 15 years in particular, we have sort of quietly put more and more stuff in that war box with with in some cases, Appropriately, but in other cases with really quite devastating uh, results for any kind of democratic accountability. So, Yoki, this is a not so veiled indictment of the concept of the war on terrorism, uh, because what it does is it says uh, we are waging war against all terrorists, all those who support terrorists, all those who might be terrorists the phenomenon of terrorism as it's manifest. And that takes us into a realm um, that is not just highly asymmetric, but uh, is typically been a police realm, not a military realm, and into almost every society because uh, the terror threat exists everywhere and it brings us away from the concept of war existing between two states and into the concept of one state being able to wage war against a perceived class of individuals who pose a threat regardless of where they live. Uh, And that's the slipperiest of slopes here. And I was just wondering what your reaction is. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I would, I would actually take it a step further. It doesn't open just the door to one government doing it. It opens the door to every government doing it. So right now, we like to, I think, because of the institutional arrogance of the U.S. military that Rosa and I and Corey and David, we've all come across in different ways. But right now, we have the best drones. We have the best armed drones. We have the drones that could stay in the air the longest and fly the farthest so we can hit people in Yemen and Pakistan and parts of Africa and on and on and on. What are we going to say when China starts to do the same thing? What are we going to say when Russia starts to do the same thing? When India starts to do the same thing, Pakistan, Israel, you have more and more countries, I've read about this before, but you have more and more countries that either have or are developing armed drones. So what will we say when China uses an armed drone to kill someone in Taiwan because they think that person is a militant? When Turkey uses an armed drone to kill someone that they say is a ghoulinist somewhere outside the borders of Turkey? You know, to Rose's point, which I agree with, there's a moral slippery slope for the U.S. when we're a democracy, but we don't know what the government does in our name. We don't have oversight over it. But there's also the moral slippery slope of when the U.S. can no longer stay in another country, you've gone too far because the other country will say, well, you've been doing it for years and years and years. And then we go one more level, which is if we're talking about deterring, let's say, a country like Russia, Russia intervenes in the Ukraine in part because it says, hey, U.S., you intervene everywhere. What are you to tell us we can't do the same? Then not only do we lose our deterrent because they've already gone in, but then we lose any moral standing we say we once had to say to them, you've gone too far. And for that matter, any standing we've had to justify pushing back at them. So when I look at this, 
the slippery slope we're seeing here is very scary. The slippery slope we're about to see with other countries is much scarier. I think that's a hugely important point. Do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> well, I, I think that I mean one thing that's worth saying is when when we when I when I make this argument the, I get a very sympathetic reaction from from all my friends in the human rights community, for instance, who tend to say things like, you're absolutely right, and therefore the problem is that we shouldn't be using military force as a counterterrorism tool, or, and or uh, you're absolutely right, uh, obviously after 9-11, we should simply have characterized the attacks as crime, and we shouldn't be just talking, we just shouldn't be ta- talking about the military at all, the law, law of armed conflict has no place here. That's actually not what I think. Um, I think that the the... The problem is is more complicated than that. You know that, that it's it's the, the problem is a really fundamental one, which is that today we do live in a world in which technological changes have enabled small groups, non-state actors, even individuals, to cause a level of of damage that we once would have associated with states at war with one another, uh, and indeed that increasingly the technological tools exist to cause. A level of damage using using uh, non kinetic using using electronic or financial manipulation that can achieve the political aims that we would have associated with war. Um, and so, given that it's on the one hand, it's not it's not nuts to sort of think, well, wait a second, if these individuals can cause damage on the level of that normally thought of as caused by states at war with one another, shouldn't we call it war? Isn't that uh, isn't that reasonable? You know, on some level, it is. I think I think our real problem right now is is kind of a, a political and legal failure of imagination that we sort of we have these two boxes. We have this box we call war and this box we call peace or ordinary life. And we have quite different legal rules uh, that permit quite different kinds of things in each box. And it hasn't really occurred to us yet that maybe we ought to have a bunch of other boxes, too, with their own sets of rules, you know, that, 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 that too often this discussion kind of turns into this completely silly argument about, well, is it, should we call it war or should we call it crime? You know, one or the other. It's, it's this very binary binary debate, um, which inevitably doesn't go anywhere because it's so binary. And I think that the only way out ultimately is to recognize that, you know, conflict and threats occur on a spectrum. Responses should also occur on a spectrum ranging from ranging from entirely non-military types of responses all the way up to what we think of as traditional interstate uh, armed conflict. But that, that shouldn't, we shouldn't have you know, a complete permissiveness towards violence and secrecy and lack of accountability versus this sort of standard law enforcement model where due process comes first. There's a lot of space in between, and we need to get moving on the hard work of coming up with legal frameworks that are suitable to the in-between space, which which we don't want to do because it's just, just too hard, frankly. So there are a lot of books out there, folks who are listening. You may even have some in your home, uh, unlike, say, Donald Trump, who I, well, we'll leave that aside. Uh, There are a lot of books out there. There are fewer good books. What sets apart a good book from a great book is that a great book raises questions that need to be raised that haven't fully been raised before at a time uh, that the debate has not been shaped yet, but but it's needed. Uh, And this book does just that. In the course of our discussion here, what you have heard is that our military is not just coddled and overfunded, uh, but 
it is not successful at many of the missions that it must undertake. And that is due in part to a shifting of the, the, the circumstances around the globe as to what we define as war and what we define as peacetime activities and how we define and categorize threats. But it, the book goes beyond that because it's raising questions not just about how we view the military and how we should view the military and how we view war and how we should view war, but also about how our political system is responding to this, how our legal system is responding to this, and what kind of public debate we ought to have. Obviously, public debate begins someplace. Uh, the best place for it to begin is with an informed book. Uh, the good news for you, though, about this book is it's written by Rosa Brooks. And as the editor of a media organization, I know I'm supposed to not have favorites among my children, uh, <laughs> the people who are working for the organization. But I will tell you, Rosa Brooks is my favorite writer for foreign policy. Aw, David, I, except for Corey that, and Yoki. No, she well, leaps I, tall buildings <laughs> in a single bound, and it's a genuinely brilliant book. Congratulations, Rosa. And it's a Thank brilliant you. book, and but it's also witty, like Rosa is witty, and lively, like Rosa is lively. And I, I wouldn't say, you know, she was the best of all of our writers. She's tied with a couple of other writers for being the best of our writers so that other writers who are listening, you can imagine that you're one of the ones who's tied with Rosa. <laughs> well, even more uh, important, David, the book, every 10th copy has a golden ticket entitling you to a tour of the, the cho chocolate factory. Uh, so as an added incentive. Yeah, the Willy Wonka and the redefinition of war was one of the titles I know you were playing. Right. <laughs> Uh, but in any event, this is this is really I, I, I urge you if you're if you're listening to this, take the time, order the book, read the book and lead the conversation that we need to be having. The one that isn't happening in the political debate in this country now, but hopefully will start to happen after November. As has been pointed out, Corey has a great book. Yuki has a has an excellent book now available in paperback. Uh, so there's there's lots for you to read here, but start with Rose's book because that was the focus of this uh, particular episode of the ER. Uh, I want to thank Rosa and congratulate her on a great achievement. I want to thank Corey, as always, and Yucky, as always, for great discussion of the type you don't find someplace else. And if you agree with me that you don't find someplace else, come back to the ER sometime soon. That's it for now. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.